surround myself with good things, fun things, and I allow my childlike spirit to to have free reign in my life. Hi everyone and welcome to yet another episode of 80% Mental. My name is Dr. Pete Olushaga. This is a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. Or at least it was, because in this series, I'm still on a mission to try and unpack the mental aspects of as many different areas of performance as I can. And we've stepped outside the sporting arena a couple of times already this series, and I'm going to do the same thing again in this episode as I explore the psychology of the singer. Now, I, I can't really remember a time in my life without music. There was always music in our house growing up, and I own my own eclectic tastes to my mum who would have opera and classical music blasting away from the kitchen and my older and younger siblings who would listen to everything from pop to rock to grunge to soul to rap and everything in between and anytime I get the chance I've got a set of headphones in I'm listening to something music is healing music holds things together it's a quote from the late prince music acts like a magic key to which the most tightly closed heart opens. And if you know who said that, then you can tweet us at EPM Podcast or leave a comment on the website. And the great Ray Charles said, music is powerful. As people listen to it, they can be affected, they respond. And nothing could be truer. We know from extensive research in sport and exercise psychology that music quite literally, well, probably not literally actually, lights up the brain. Music has the power to affect our mood, our ability to concentrate. It can enhance confidence. It can psych us up and it can calm us down, reducing stress and reducing anxiety. There's a link between music and athletic performance that we might well explore at some point in the future, but this episode is on the psychology of the performer, the psychology of the singer. We're going to focus on the artists the ones that bring music every day into our lives. And so it is with tremendous pleasure that I can introduce my first guest, the queen of British soul, Beverly Knight. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I'm, I'm good, thank you, Beverly. I'm delighted to be here. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm so, so, so chuffed that you asked me to, to be a part of something so wonderful and so fascinating. So... Thank you. No, you're, you're, you're very welcome. For um, people who don't know, Beverly is one of the most consistent artists in the UK and has been for over two decades with several top 10 albums selling over a million albums in the UK. She's performed with Prince, Jamiroquai, Take That and Shaka Khan, to name a few. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted to, to have you here. Um, I think probably what people might remember you for most recently is your performance at the closing ceremony of the 2020 2000 and what of the 2022 commonwealth games in your hometown of birmingham and i just want to say you absolutely smashed it oh thank you um thank you so much i'm i'm actually a wolverhamptoner which is just you know not far up the road from birmingham but um i'm often described as a brummy even though uh, Wolverhampton is is um, just a little way uh, north, yeah. but it was wonderful for me to have the games um, come and visit, you know, so close to my hometown and um, 
and to be able to see some of the 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 uh, events actually go through my hometown, notably the cycling. Um, it was just such a joy, and the whole of the the black country and Birmingham area just was was lit up for that little moment in time, much like um, ten years ago when London experienced the Olympics, and just for that short period of time, it felt like life was wonderful in all aspects, you know, and that's how it felt um, being at the um, Alexander Stadium in, in Perry Bar in Birmingham. It, it, there was such a wonderful, warm, communal feeling, a feeling of Britain's future, not just Britain's present. And, and I really loved being a part of that. And apologies for the Birmingham Wolverhampton mix. I'm from it's all right. Well, it's I, I, I'm from I'm from Newcastle, so it's all, yes. all, it's basically it's all the south to me. <laughs> That's right. So, <laughs> but um, but yeah, talking about the Commonwealth Games, like, are you sporty at all? I am. When before um, before I had the opportunity to be known to the the wider British public. Um, I was a, a, a very humble uh, sports enthusiast, and um, I took part in the uh, in my in my school sports arenas. You know, I played netball, mm-hmm. uh, played hockey. Um, I was part of the athletics team. Um, I went on to represent Wolverhampton in the two hundred meters and the long jump. Oh wow! Um, in a kind of counties, uh, all schools counties. Um, uh, gathering meat. Um, I was absolutely horrible um, compared to some of the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, uh, men and women that were there. But I loved it and I still love sport to this day um, and I still follow it with with a passion. So I, I, I love sport. Brilliant. Well, I, I'm so pleased that you could join us and I'm really looking forward to getting your insights into some of the psychology behind performance. Oh, yes. Also joining me today on the podcast is Dr. Kaori Araki, a Chief Sport and Performance Psychology Consultant at Corazon Co. Limited. Uh, Kaori is a retired professor and taught sports psychology in Singapore and Japan for 18 years. Uh, Kaori, welcome to 80% Mental. Thank you for inviting me. I'm in Japan, Kyoto, Japan right now, and I'm very happy to talk to all of you. And you, you were involved, you say you're in Japan now, you were involved with uh, a, a pretty special episode in uh, Japan's sporting history as well. I believe you were involved with Japan Rugby. Yes, I was. Uh, I worked with the Eddie Jones, now head coach of the English uh, England uh, national rugby team. And when Eddie was in Japan, we worked for four years preparing for the World Cup in 2015 and we had a historical winning against South Africa in um, in England. Yeah, I remember watching that. It was a, a amazing, <laughs> it must have been an amazing thing to be involved with. Yes. Yes, it was a great experience. And I asked Beverly if she was uh, she was sporty. Are you are you a singer, Kaori? Um, we have karaoke in Japan, so <laughs> occasionally we sing. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, like you already mentioned. I always miss already. I always listen to the music. I grown up with listening to the music, and music is in our life all the time. So yeah, definitely love music. 
Well, thank you again for agreeing to come on because I know it's it's uh, somewhat late where you are as well. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on the podcast and look forward to getting your insights uh, on the topic. Thank you. So we'll we'll jump right in then. Um, and I'll I, I start with you, Beverly. I, as a kid, I remember just outright refusing to be in our school play. I must have been like six or seven, and it it wasn't it wasn't even a speaking part. All I, all I had to do was sit on stage with a newspaper. But the thought of the thought of being up on stage in front of everyone was just it was just terrifying to me. Um, but there's some kids who just see a camera or an audience and they just want to throw themselves in front of it. What were you like? Have you always been a performer? I was that child. <laughs> there was a camera. <laughs> I was in front of it. If there was a microphone, I was behind it. If there was a stage, I stood up on it. I loved it. <laughs> I, I absolutely, my mum tells me that when I went to um, preschool or play school or whatever you might want to call it, you know, reception age. So I was, I was barely in my talking phase. You know, I was just about talking. But boy, was I singing. I was standing on tables. I was standing on chairs. Anything that resembled a microphone, whether it was my favorite rubber duck, uh, my Donald Duck that (laughs) mom had bought me when she went to America and brought back for me as a present when I was three. I had it. I was standing. There's a picture of me clinging on to this Donald Duck for dear life because it was my microphone and I was going to use it. I was that child. I had no fear of audiences, no fear of um, standing and performing. To me, it was the most natural thing that anybody could do. And in fact, I'd go as far as to say that um, I struggled to understand kids who didn't want to be on stage or, you know, behind a mic or in the spotlight. I just, I struggled to understand them. I was like, but Why? Who wouldn't want to be? Because um, not everybody is is built the same way, and and uh, that's that's what's what, what makes us so fascinating as human beings. But yeah, I had no fear. I, I loved it. Still do. <laughs> I was, it's just curious. I mean, you know, do do you think that's something that performers have got in common? Is it something that people sort of are th- that natural born performer? They've always been like that, or you know, you've had a lot of time in the industry. Have you come across people who are perhaps the opposite that maybe shy away from the spotlight yes it's I'm really glad you asked that as well because it's very interesting in my own family I was the obvious clear you know um kind of show off if you like performer Mm -hmm. um I look at my sister's middle child my niece Sophie who is has now embarked on a career of, of music and singing but as a child we never heard her sing not ever just never. It was only when she came um, through her adolescence that she started to find her voice. Um, so quite the opposite to how I was. Mm. Um, and then in my my career, I have met so many people, um, people who you would know. Uh, for example, Dina Carroll. I'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying. Mm. Um, Dina Carroll, great voice, great singer. Um, very early 90s, you know, huge success. But the reason you don't hear about Dina Carroll so much now is absolute nervous wreck in the spotlight. Just 
fine in a studio, but stood on a stage, you know, possessed of such stage fright, just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, and I, I, I find, you know, I meet people all the time who, who have that real trepidation before they step on stage and, and have to find mechanisms to get that under control. It's, it's quite interesting. And I, and I find it really, really fascinating because I am so the opposite way. I'm going to uh, bring in Kaori here. Um, and Kaori, what, what, what are you hearing here? You know, because you work with uh, performers as well. Uh, your background's in sport and exercise, but like quite a few sport and performance psychologists, you work with other types of performer as well. Um, in your experience, do you come across people who are very much extroverted and people who are sort of more shy and retiring? And, you know, what, what are some of the things that you see as a, as a psychologist working with uh, performers? Um, I've been mainly consulting with the vocalists, singers. Mm-hmm. And um, she or he could be a member of the band or group, not the solo singers. And of course, my goal is to um, help vocalists to produce the uh, good performance. And um, there are many singers who do not have any problems recording in the studio, but do have some, like, um, really say, like stage flight kind of issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they uh, either live or record on the TV program or live on stage, uh, performing in front of like 30, 40,000 people. So mm-hmm. I do need to work on those um, anxiety, pressure, or stress, all those issues as well. And um, I don't know, you can divide it by types because they have different backgrounds and different reasons. But when when I think about it, when they started their career, they don't have a problem. But as they develop their career, the expectation grows. So they wanted to perform better and they may start having the, those problems. And um, sometimes they need uh, help from psychiatrists or they sometimes need help from um, uh, description drugs as well, medicines mm-hmm. as well. So um, I, I I think it's common issues for any artist need to perform up to par in front of their fans. Sure. So there's that perhaps development as a, as a career goes on and there's perhaps more pressure and more expectation. Um, maybe that has perhaps an impact on, on the performance anxiety. Um, Beverly, is, is that something that you've ever sort of experienced yourself performance anxiety i i have to be honest with you i i it's not something that's ever happened to me mm. um uh, i try to explain this as um all the time you know when i'm asked about just what it must be like to stand on stage and perform for people and for me it's the most natural and normal thing in the world the, the the thing that I feel before I stand on a stage is immense excitement um, and the adrenaline that you need, you know, in order to raise your game, literally, your performance uh, levels from mere kind of rehearsal mode to show mode. 
but that the that real deep anxiety that I see people go through where they're pacing up and down in the wings, I can't do it, I can't go on. I've never had that. Um, there are times where I've gone on stage and thought, I'm not actually prepared for what I'm doing here. I don't feel as though I've done enough preparation. Um, I've had that with um, kind of more latterly in my career, um, the theatre work where I've stood on stage and thought, do I know all my lines? Do I know this dance routine? Dancing is my is my weakness. Um, you know, do do I know what I'm doing? Do I, I know my blocking, for example? But I think that's a different feeling of, of just feeling that lack of preparedness and then you go on and everything's fine um, compared to uh, that feeling of kind of that deep, deep sense of I'm not enough. I've never felt that. And I, and I sense that from a lot of other performers that actually a lot of their worry is that they're worried that their, they, their skill, their talent isn't enough to sustain them through a performance. And most times it's just not true. <laughs> they they, they mm. are. Um, it, I, I've always had that deep confidence in myself that even if I don't quite know what I'm doing, I'll find a way through it and all will be well in the end. So obviously the, the podcast is about the psychology of performance and, mm. you know, we're starting now to talk about some of the, those mental aspects of performance, the confidence, the sort of stage presence, the preparation. Yes. Uh, I, I'm sure the challenges of what you do are, are many and, and varied, but what would you describe as some of the mental challenges that you might face as a, as a singer or as you say, as a stage performer? Um, the biggest thing is, is you, you need, an ego. This is a, this is a big one for me. Mm. You need an amount of ego to stand on any stage, anywhere, no matter how big or small, in front of an audience, and perform. It's 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 the same ego that a singer has, an actor, a comedian, um, because those things are so subjective. People can throw stones at you, you know, uh, uh, metaphorically speaking, um, if they don't think you're any good. Um, mm. It's something like sport. It's For me, it's measurable. There is a science behind it. Someone is demonstrably faster, stronger, whatever, than somebody else. But with music and with performance, with the arts, it is so subjective so you need you need an ego you need a big ego to even think you can get on the stage in the first place but then you need to know how to control the beast that is the ego mm. um so that you don't stand on stage and think any kind of performance will do you know they should be all grateful that that I'm in the room you know <laughs> so there's so many stages to uh, so many kind of facets to that ego. And so for me, I have the confidence within myself, brackets the ego. I stand on the stage knowing I can do the job. Again, that's one part of the ego. Mm. And then before I've done any of that, I make sure I've done as much work as I can so that what I'm presenting on stage is at a really great level so that when people see that ego personified, they know that it's justified. I hope that makes sense. 
it's not I've got an ego, but oh my God, I don't think I'm not particularly any good. I've just got this great big swaggering ego. Mm. I make sure I've done the work so that any kind of plaudit I get is with justification. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely makes sense. And and again, you know, to to bring it back to sport that you mentioned, that absolutely that that confidence that we encourage is confidence based on reality, the preparation, yes. the work that's that's gone in. So you can stand there with confidence, knowing that it's it's actually support. It's not baseless confidence. That's right, um, Kaori. Uh, what do you think about this? What are some of the uh, challenges for the performers that you work with, some of the things that, that come up often? Uh, there's uh, some um, cultural differences mm-hmm. between um, maybe England and Japan because because of male-dominated nature of the music industry in Japan, especially um like a significant gender expectation placed upon female artists, expectation to be thin in Japan, to thin and pretty and attractive and talented. Um, I always try to um, empower female artists to be like um, confident and believe in their self. I think it's a major issues, right? here in Japan because many female authors feel like they don't have a control over their own performance because expectation from the male staff members Mm. it's very hard for female uh, female artists to um, think like really just say be confident and I can do it kind of feelings emotions it's very hard for them to hold that so I need to help them develop that kind of um confident and feelings and ego per se. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the work that you might do then. What, you know, if you're working with uh, a performer, a female performer, how might you go about building that confidence? Well, <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's uh, obviously going to be different depending on who you're working with. Yes. <laughs> just, yes. you know, some, some of the skills that you might teach or some of the ways that you might bring out confidence. Well, before being a confident as an artist, singer, they need to be confident as a, as a person. Mm-hmm. So we just start from basic, usually st- start from basic because um, in the music industry, it's like there's no clock. <laughs> um, the staff members don't care if it's a midnight or three in the morning, uh, as long as they can produce creative works. Mm-hmm. Um, they let artists work in the studio as well. So it's challenging to let staff members to know that artists better follow the sunrise and sunset and to have a healthy lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And it's for their uh, physical, mental, and spiritual health. And if the artists have a good night's sleep and good eating behavior and exercise habits, uh, it will lead to a good, best performance in the end. So rather than just uh, focus on building the confidence and uh, positive emotion, all those things, I usually try to make sure that they have a good habit in their in their just normal life. Mm-hmm. 
so that's a start usually that's a start it's depend on the artist but it's it's usually the start because um in japan they don't wake up early in the morning they wake up like noon and they go to bed like four o'clock in the morning all right uh, it's normal <laughs> <laughs> everybody's laughing now yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Beverly, you know, yes. the um, we've just been talking about this. The music industry is notoriously brutal, especially so for a woman and especially so yes. for a woman of color. Um, yes. I, 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 how well do you feel that you were prepared for a career in that sort of environment? You know, Kaori's talked there about, you know, kind of having control of your career choices, your own image. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about some of that? Absolutely. I was um, a, a, a totally, totally naive young woman when um, I was discovered um, back in in uh, ninety. Well, initially in in the very early nineties, and then signed my deal in ninety four. Um, I mean, I knew what I knew about music was the creative process you know um how to communicate a message through song you know all the all the aspects all the all the fun bits all the creative bits all the the joyous bits the business not a clue I mean I was mm. so green I didn't appreciate um although I'd been watching it my whole life you know with Madonna and and, and people like that I didn't um appreciate just how much image would play a role in me being a, 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 a performer. I don't know why I didn't. I just, I just didn't. I, I wasn't prepared for so many um, men <laughs> telling me <laughs> what I should look like, what I should do, how I should dress, you know, you know, looking at my songs and telling me their opinion on what a woman should think. Mm. Thanks very much, guys. Um <laughs> I, I wasn't prepared for any of that. I certainly um, wasn't prepared for the rigidity of, if that's such a word, of how black female artists were perceived, that they were confined to one specific sound in music, one, one specific kind of genre or umbrella of genres and nothing more and should never ever traverse the lines into any other area. Um, yeah. it, that really, really took me by surprise. And that was um, not only reinforced by the guys in suits, and I, and I do literally mean that because so few <laughs> female execs in the music industry still to this day, mm. but also the public's own understanding um, of what uh, a black female artist should look like and sound like and the kind of music she should perform. I just wasn't prepared for any of it. I um, came into the industry, like yourself, Peter, I, I uh, loved all kinds of everything when it came to music. My mm. musical knowledge was wide and pretty extensive and my musical app 
appetite was voracious, you mm. know. And as a result, even though I started off in R&B and soul music coming from a gospel background, eventually I wanted to flower and bloom into and touch all kinds of areas of music. Such was my naivety. <laughs> um, massive, massive, massive obsessive Prince fan. And just like he kind of defined any neat genres, I was hoping in my naivety I could do the same. But I was met with serious and pretty fierce resistance to all of that. Me being me, I fought my way through it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm stubborn. And um, <laughs> I, I stuck to my guns. Musically, I wanted to make the music I made. I wanted to... Um, you know, develop my career the way I wanted to develop it and no one was going to tell me. Um, and, and part of that resilience and that stubbornness, if you like, is why I believe I'm still around. But I, it, lots of challenges, lots and lots of challenges. I've told this story before, but I remember being in the studio cutting a song which I'd written, just me, all by myself, wrote it at the piano. So just piano and voice initially, song called Gold, which was a kind of self-affirmation um, song, you know, a, a female empowerment song, if you like. And um, I went into the studio to cut it and I had very definite ideas of how it should sound, very simple. And the producer who was working with me had a completely different set of ideas of how he thought it should sound. And... Um, when I heard what he had done, I thought it sounded too overblown, a bit too syrupy, um, you know, just kind of aged the song for me. And when I expressed that as a view, he excused himself for a comfort break. That still goes on to this day because he never came back to the studio. <laughs> um, and I thought, wow, okay, Um this studio uh, session is quite expensive. Um, this isn't good. I guess I go home. Uh, explained what had happened to, you know, the powers that be and management. And, of course, the question was asked, what did I do to upset him? And I thought, ah, <laughs> right. Here we are. This is how it is if you're a female in this industry. Um, you know, uh, just it, it's fascinating and you talk to other women in 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 the music industry especially women of color and people can be very reductive in 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 how they um approach you you know your questions they'll they'll ask you surface level questions shallow things you know your favorite lipstick or whatever <laughs> but they'll ask a man about the process of writing the song and how did you come up with this particular theme and this lyric and da, 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 da. it's um it's challenge after challenge, but there is something inside of me in terms of my makeup that just was determined to do, to quote Frank Sinatra, to do it my way. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, a, a certain resilience that you that you have. Mm. Uh, did you have to develop that over time? Like, how, how did you you know, did you have to develop a particular mindset to deal with some of these challenges? And, and how did you do that? I've, I've always been singularly minded. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no surprise there. Um, 
if the crowd was, if today all the crowd, are, 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 you know, are kind of all getting on the whole smoking weed, then if I didn't fancy it, then I'm not going to do it. I didn't fancy it. You know, when all my friends start to go out and start drinking and that, I stuck to my cup of tea to this day, just because I don't like it. It just doesn't appeal to me. Um, you know, when everybody laughed at me because they couldn't understand this fascination with Prince while they all liked other artists. Um, I was like, well, you'll see the light. You'll come round to my way of thinking. And they did. Um, but I, I just, I've always been that kind of person, singularly minded. And But I really had to develop, with that, I had to then develop a thick skin. Um, because, as I said earlier, the art of making music and presenting music, it's a subjective thing. It's not scientific. It's not measurable. It's based on everybody's opinion and then a general consensus. Mm -hmm. So I had to prepare myself for people who would say, you know, not particularly flattering things about my my um, ability to write songs or my um, my my singing or you know just the music I made and I had to then take that same single-minded attitude and toughen up because I knew it was coming and that I'm afraid only happens in the moment you can't prepare yourself in advance you have to go through the fire to to toughen up literally you know mm-hmm. um it, and that's where you have to really start digging deep that's where you start to rely on your friends and look in the mirror and find epic amounts of of ego to sustain yourself uh, but equally not let that ego go so far out of control that you're you're you become a lost soul but yeah, it's it's it, it's not easy. Um, it, it's it has. I always had it, but then it, it developed and fine tuned and honed itself over the years. Is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you, you mentioned friends there as well. It's going to sort of follow this up a little bit. You mentioned mm. friends there as well. Uh, who are the the real influential people in your career? Where did you sort of pick up this mindset and, and sort of develop it? Um. Well. First and foremost, my family. I come from a musical family, generations of musicians. So when I started to come along and add my voice to the to the um, already existing numbers of voices and musicians in my family, it was no surprise to anybody, and especially because I was such a such a little show off and such a little performer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so looking around me, but that also. Uh, kind of kept my feet on the ground, you know, you're not the only singer in the village, Beverly. <laughs> there are other people right next to you, your sister, your brother, you know, your cousins, um, who are epically talented and multi-instrumentalists. So, you know, you just mind yourself. You know, I had that in my immediate environment. And then going beyond that, um, you know, with 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 friends, I kept, and to this day, they're still the same friends from from school. Um, kept them close to me because they're the kind of people who would tell me the truth about myself, good, bad, or indifferent. My husband James, you know, 
not impressed by anything or anyone when it comes to fame and celebrity. And he's he's the best kind of man to have around because he will, again, be absolutely honest with me. And then my friends, after moving to London, my friends who I have down here, uh, you know, one of my closest, closest friends is, is a DJ, Monroe, and uh, also from Newcastle, incidentally. And he, he will always um, talk to me, you know, when I'm kind of crystallizing my ideas and say, well, actually, Bev, that's just rubbish. Uh, you know, or that's a really good idea. You can develop that. You know, he, he will be honest with me. Um, having people around who keep your feet firmly planted on terra firma is essential for your own well-being, but also for the development of, of, of one's craft. And, and that has, has really helped me, you know, to sustain a career where I, I've tried my best, you know, to be decent and, you know, kind and, and polite and, and, and cordial to, to, to everyone around me. Because if I wasn't, my friends, my husband, you know, my family would let me know in a heartbeat. So having that, I, I guess the kind of key things that are coming through there are people mm. who keep you grounded and people who will be yeah. honest with you almost to a fault. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, so, and it's hard to hear sometimes. Mm. Sometimes it's really hard to hear. But you you know the people who are doing the telling are the same people who are doing the loving. It's not kind of um, uh, a fair weather admiration, you know, mm. which rises and falls on one's celebrity or perceived levels of fame. It's the real, real deal. So that for me is priceless and I look around at um, the careers of other people and um, I've seen how not having that not having people who will be real and honest with them has gone on to either destroy their career or take their life um, and I never want to be in that position hmm. I, I want to bring uh, Kaori back in here um, to talk about this idea of social support and from the psychologist's point of view, uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about the importance of social support for performers, I guess, in, in sport as well as with some of the musicians that you might might work with? Um, you just mentioned about resilience. And if we um, remember about the research about resilience, they always talk about uh, having a good relationship with your family and friends and colleagues and um, significant others. So um, it's in order to develop resilience, it's important to have a social support and have a good relationship with others and when to ask questions, when to ask for support and when to ask for the sincere uh, comments from them. Um, so in terms of support, I usually work with the... Uh, management staff, uh, physio guys mm -hmm. who uh, give them treatment, physical treatment. I usually work, sometimes work with the producer as well, how to uh, uh, place a comment to uh, artist. So um, our goal is, is uh, for them to, for artists to perform well. So they do need a support with like, um, again, in Japanese culture, in Japanese culture, it's very hard to have a strong ego, sp strong the self, 
and uh, always uh, people around you telling you what to do, how to do. Hmm. And so being independent person, independent artist is pretty hard. If you are not consciously working on that part, uh, it's pretty hard to develop that kind of skill. I guess the people, well, even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, mm-hmm. we didn't have the instant scrutiny uh, that we have now with social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I recorded an, an episode uh, with Shobna Gulati, the actor, um, and she talked a lot about that instant feedback that you get on performance from Instagram, from Twitter. Um <laughs> And I wonder whether that's something that you see a lot more of now with performers dealing with uh, or helping them to deal with that that level of, of scrutiny, that level of instant feedback. Is that something that comes up with the performers you work with, Kaori? Yes, we ban check-in SNS social network services right. right after performance because you see many negative comments, mm. especially for women who look fat or not pretty enough or blah, blah, blah. So um, we have uh, rules usually to not uh, look for your own information, ego search to protect yourself because Mm. resiliency is a part of protecting yourself. So uh, not reaching to the information you don't really need to know is a part of resilience. So we have that for sure. What do you think of that as a strategy, Beverly? Just kind of complete ignoring of social media. Is that something that you have to deal with as well? I think there are some wise words that um, <laughs> Dr. is saying there because I tell you, it is a foolhardy thing to put your name into a social media search engine <laughs> and click. You know, that's just... Because if you ever wanted to know how much people hate your guts, that's the fastest way to do it. Yeah, you're just asking very, for trouble. You're asking for, it's, like, it's right, you're asking for trouble. You will find opinions about every single facet of your being on social media, from my big, big, beautiful Afro hair to my feet to my voice to my... <laughs> eyes to the width of my nose to my Wolverhampton accent to, to I mean everything they will comment on everything and some you know slip of the tongue from 15 years ago will be unearthed and laid bare for you to see 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 this is what you said 15 years ago and this is what you're saying today you're a hypocrite you know not like human beings cannot change grow and develop but mm-hmm. it's it really is, whilst it's a, a, a tool of empowerment to people who otherwise would have no outlet for their opinions and to voice opinions, we have to remember that sometimes those opinions are horrible. And <laughs> it's much easier to... Um, whilst you you know you might voice your opinions on, on, on certain things, it's much easier to sometimes just press the off button or just, you know, close the laptop, shut the phone down and have a moment so you can restore your own well-being and your peace of mind. Um, 
you know, even someone like me, and I'm I'm aware that as I'm talking to you both and to everybody who's listening, I'm aware that I sound like a very confident woman, and I am, I I absolutely am. But even there are times, even for me, where I'm like, ah, this is too much, you know. I, I, I'm going to have to measure my use of social media. I, I have a, a, a TV um, show that I'm currently recording. It's a big, shiny Saturday night TV show. And typically the kind of thing that, you know, multi-generations watch, um, you know, the full demographic of, of, of Britain. And um, I know that everything I do say where every note I sing, everything I do is going to be put under the microscope. Mm-hmm. So during that time when that show goes to air, I will do the social media that is required of me, you know, um, for the show. But in terms of kind of scrolling through comments and things, I will be very, very guarded and very careful because even the most supremely confident who walk among us still have you know a soul and a heart and feelings and you know not made of stone so you have to guard yourself and I think what um Dr Kaori is saying is 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 spot on really especially if you're trying to build your your own resilience the last thing you want to do is read a load of tweets (laughs) slating you I'm here with Beverly Knight, the one and only Beverly Knight, and the one and only Dr. Kaori Akari. And we're talking about the psychology of the singer, the performer, the ones who bring us music. Um, if you're enjoying the conversation, uh, which I certainly am, don't forget to like, share, retweet, uh, all the good social media stuff. Shout from the rooftops, go tell your neighbors. Um, or you can leave a comment on the website, uh, 80percentmental.com. You can find us on Twitter at EPM Podcast. So, Beverly, you've sort of fairly recently, I suppose, uh, the last sort of five or 10 years or so, made a bit of a switch from um, uh, being a recording artist to musical theater. Mm-hmm. Is, is that something that you always wanted to do? Was that always on the cards? I have been performing since I was five on stages in theater. And only stopped when I signed my deal. So for me, I'm going back to, mm. you know, where 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 I, I I first started some of those formative stages. Um, I've always had this parallel <laughs> life of being on stage in theatre and then being on the pulpit in church singing my heart out, mm-hmm. and then that swap that for um you know the stages and and, and music venues, but. And I still have that as a parallel career. They they run in tandem and hand in hand with each other. And it's something I I didn't kind of see coming, if I'm honest with you. Um, I got back into theatre because uh, I was handed a script to um, a musical called Memphis um, about the um, explosion of, of, of rock and roll in the early years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it was Lenny Henry's partner, Lisa Makin, who was involved in the production of that musical. And uh, Lenny and Lisa knew that I um, had an acting background and thought I would be 
perfect for the the lead role in this musical, the lead female role. So that kind of switched a light bulb on. And in my head, uh, the theatre wasn't ready. You know, it was just an idea with this script. Um, but something inside of me thought, ah, theatre. I was at a point in my career where I could have just done another album and, you know, saw what happened with that. Mm-hmm. Or I could make things a bit more interesting. And um, I felt as though I was at that point and this was where I was meant to go. And funnily enough, despite everything I've just said about social media, I found myself on Twitter one day <laughs> um, scrolling through the tweets and saw a tweet that said that the cast of The Bodyguard was being changed. There was going to be a, a, a kind of new vamped, new, new version. And I thought, well, I know exactly who the Rachel Maron character is. I know those Whitney Houston songs. I know I can sing them. Hmm. I'm going to give this a go. Two weeks later, found myself doing an audition in front of the director and the producers of the show. And later on the same day, was offered the role and then thought, oh my God, what have I done? (laughs) Um, There's a difference between standing on stage at Wolverhampton Grand Theatre um, you know, <laughs> or indeed, you know, Birmingham Symphony Hall doing a concert and then standing on a West End stage, you know, to people who have paid a hell of a lot of money all over the world to see me act, sing and dance. But thankfully, it went really well. And that was the beginning of my theatre career almost 10 years ago. And I haven't stopped doing productions since. And that's opened the door to... Uh, my first ever feature film and um, and also to some TV work now as well. But none of these things were in the design. It's just the way, I guess, the cards fell for me. Um, yeah, it, it, it's quite a, a, an extraordinary um, story, actually, I think, mm-hmm. um, and one that I'm extremely grateful for. And I imagine that the challenges of, uh, for example, going on to a recording an album starring in a musical are perhaps quite different. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I stand on stage as myself, you know, Beverly Knight, with my band behind me, I very much stand there as, you know, you've come to my party, you've come to my church, we're all going to worship together, we're going to have a great time. Mm-hmm you know, and I might edit this song and I might extend that one and I might throw this song out altogether because I'm not feeling it today and I might, you know, put something else in. But basically it's two hours of me just expressing myself however I feel in that moment with my band, with me and all the pressures and whatever, you know, that that brings. Mm. It, it never feels like pressure, to be honest. It just feels like joy. Um <laughs> But when I'm in uh, uh, the lead role of a West End show, I have to take on something of a a mum figure. Um, Invariably, I'm leading the company. So everybody's looking to me to how I behave. If I turn up on time to rehearsals, if I'm there at warm up, if I know my lines, have I done my homework? Do I know my blocking? So I... I'm something of a a pointer of how everybody's experience is going to be in that Mm. building and therefore the experiences of the audience. So I'm very aware of my responsibility um, when I'm leading a a company. But at the same time, I'm part of 
a, a wider group. And I, it's a weird kind of a, a, a thing. It's, um, I might be the lead in a show, but I am not the star because the show in itself is a star. Mm-hmm. Because if you take me away, you have to put somebody else into that leading role. And the show, as they famously say, must go on. So the show is very much the star. I am just part of many of the cogs, if you like, that when we work together, facilitate the bringing to the public of that show. So um, it's it's a responsibility, but it's also um, something of a, a, a humbling experience as well, because you know the minute you have sung your last and said thank you and good night to the audience and hung up your wig and your costume, the next day somebody else is going to take that same wig, same costume, put on those clothes, and they will be the leader and you will have gone into, you know, the history books and for good or bad or whatever. Uh, but that show will just endure. Um, so it, it, it completely different um, energies, completely different ways of working. And I'm doing the same show night after night after night with very little variance, mm-hmm. which is a, in and of itself a discipline and a challenge. Kaori, what are you hearing there? What do you see as some of the maybe similarities or, or differences um, in your work with, with sports performers and musicians? I believe the courage to challenge to um, new things probably talked about is what we don't have in, in our culture mm-hmm. because those are not well received (laughs) if you um behave and perform and train under certain uh advising it's better than being creative artist art is supposed to be creative but Mm. you know culture is a little bit different probably but at the same time even though you have limited um uh, opportunities if you are able to face to the challenge I think all the artists or maybe athletes also need to have a courage to challenge but we don't have that <laughs> strength <laughs> so it's like like I've already said like all about expressing myself on stage that kind of mentality is what we need because even though artists is on the stage they um, tend to um try to um have a lot of communication with the bands and staff and fans and that's we rather than i mm-hmm. so if the artists have the um uh, could have to develop their identity as i i think they should be able to enjoy their artist life a little bit more and i've learned a lot of those mentality from Beverly right now because those um, strong mentalities, what we don't have in our culture. So it has been very um, interesting to listen to her. I'm also interested in this idea of kind of performing night in, night out, doing the same thing over and over and over again. Because obviously, you know, sports performers do the same thing. In the NBA, they play 82 games a season. They play every (laughs) other night. Baseball you know, it's like a hundred and something ridiculous games a, a, a season, but it's different. Every night's different. 
something different's going to happen every time they step on the court. Beverly, I don't know if you have yes. any thoughts on that. Is it, uh, do you try and find the subtle differences in performance night to night, or is it a case of kind of going through the same routines and making sure that it's, you know, largely the same? It's, it's a funny thing. You, when you're learning the show, and there's a lot to learn, and then they change things um, in previews, which uh, for any performers listening, I, I can hear your groans from here, and trust me, I'm with you. Um, <laughs> the minute they start to change things, you've just, I've just learned this this way. No, we want to change it. And you're like, oh, my God. You, you go to bed saying, please, gods of theatre, please, please, please hurry up so that I can make my performance, you know, automatic. Please, please, please start to give me that muscle memory so that I can go on stage and not have to think about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And then you get to that stage and then you're like, okay, I need to find some variance in what I'm doing, any little variance that I can right. find. It's so funny because you are largely doing the same thing over and over again in most cases, um, unless it's a short run, for a year. Um, and that's eight shows a week, every week. There are, of course, because we are human beings and not robots, there are, of course, differences, subtle differences. You may not hit the same spot on the stage, even though you're supposed to, every <laughs> single night. You know, the audience might find a particular line really funny that didn't get a laugh than the, the the show before you know or where they're supposed to laugh there's deathly silence <laughs> which has happened before um you know that it's the audience will it to a certain extent inform how how much energy you are expending on the stage you know you walk on on stage and it's um a wednesday matinee um, in Sunderland and it's raining, you know, and the audience is typically more elderly. That feeling is not going to be the same as Saturday night in, I don't know, Liverpool, yeah. where the audience are so ready and hyped for the performance. They've started yelling out and shouting out before the curtain's even gone up. You know, so it, there there are those those variables um, that happen, but they are nuanced and they are very small. But by and large, it's the same thing day in, day out to the point where the the the, the body starts to play weird tricks on you. And a line which you've been saying for the past six months without fault and you know it backwards, you'll suddenly go. I just say that line properly <laughs> and then for the, the next week of shows you're like I'm sure I've said that line wrong and then your friend or your you know someone who's on stage with you will say no the line's actually blah 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 you've been <laughs> adding an extra word you're like oh yeah it's funny how the mind will do that it becomes mm. so automatic that it's like the human brain starts to invent things that aren't actually supposed to be there just so that you have this feeling of of difference, of variance. That's really interesting. It, it, it is, isn't it? It's really interesting. And that happens to every single performer without fail. It's it's a funny thing. 
So, so what are your go-to mental skills, strategies, things that you sort of rely on and fall back on to, to get you through, you know, and, and then that could be getting you through the performance, the rehearsals, the, the sort of lifestyle, maybe, I don't know, creative blocks that you might experience. Mm. Um, what, what are the things that really get you through some of those, some of those times? This is going to sound so trite, but hear me out. <laughs> I, I believe in the power of laughter because when you have a good belly laugh, the, the endorphins and the stress release and the, the abandon which you feel when you've had a good laugh to the point where your abs are hurting and the tears are flowing and, yeah. you know, there's something in doing that, in really laughing, in letting go, that just allows you to kind of empty yourself and then replenish and then be ready to replenish yourself all over again. Um, I know that sounds strange, but I I I find the joy and the laughter wherever I can find it. And yes, sometimes it comes from that stupid cat video that someone sent you on WhatsApp <laughs> or which for some reason has got you tickled and you watch it 20 times and you're in absolute hysterics or, you know, just having a chat to your best friend on the phone about whatever it is and you end up laughing or watching a comedian on TV or watching a funny film or, you know, where you find the joy you you find the release and then when you have the release you're ready to go again and that is that's always been my go-to people accuse me I put accuse in, in, in inverted commas I'm doing a little <laughs> thing with my fingers um of 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 being too happy oh you're always happy how come you're so happy you're a weirdo how are you happy all the time I really, really dig deep to find the joy in ordinary mundane things and in the things that are obviously joyful and obviously funny because that sustains me. It's a reminder of the the privilege, and it is a very privileged position um, in which I, I, I find myself as a performer being able to, to do what I do as a job, you know, mm. um, and and I, I I try to maintain that because I am meant to be my fundamental job. What I do for a living is to be a joy giver. It's to be a cheerleader. You know, um, that's why I sing. That's why I act. That's why I perform. It, it's also to hold up a mirror to people's nature and. Um, I must have the joy within me first and foremost before I can then extend that joy to other people and to send them on their way at the end of a concert really happy. So um, I surround myself with, with, with good things, fun things, and I allow my childlike spirit to, you know, to, to have free reign in my life. Yeah, Kaori, I'm I'm interested because I'm I'm hearing here um, some talk about values and mm -hmm. really 
making sure that things that are important to you in in your life outside of performance are taken care of the laughter the joy the having fun the friends the family is that something that is uh considered in your work yes i think she's still talking about uh resilience Mm. how to be optimistic under those certain uh, under those um situation like she uh, forgot her line or seeing different things people sometimes perceive the behavior as a mistakes because being not perfect mm-hmm. but she is trying to release the the negative pro negativity or negative energy by laughing and talking with friends and families and that's a part of optimism how to um, be resilient is a part of it and at the same time, you do, do need to know why uh, you are still in the industry because many artists disappear, especially for women being um, over 30, 40. Many female artists just disappear in Japan because they didn't, uh, they couldn't find a vision and motivation to be in the industry. So uh, I think it's important to have a um, healthy motivation, vision to remain in the industry in order to have a healthy, in order to have a healthy motivation and vision, you need to build resilience. This is 80% Mental, and I'm here with Beverly Knight and Dr. Kaori Araki. Um, And we're talking about the psychology of the singer, the performer, the musician. Um, And we've had a a really wonderful conversation so far. um, And I'm really excited to talk about a little bit more of this stuff. Um, Beverly, in, in one of our previous episodes, I spoke with a dancer uh kit holder from the royal ballet birmingham and i talked to him a little bit about creativity and we were talking about the fact that in sport there are very limited opportunities to be creative like athletes can be creative but it's always constrained by the specific rules of the game by what's allowed and what's not but in other types of performance like dance and music there's there's no rules with like fewer rules i guess mm-hmm. you know you, you can write and you can sing about whatever you want so my question is, you know, when you're writing, when you're when you're performing, what are you, what are you trying to achieve? Like motivation, sort of too. Saying what's your motivation, sort of a little bit too simple. Mm-hmm. I guess, like, what are you trying to express? What are you trying to get out? You know, and does that form part of your your drive to to continue to explore different avenues of expression? That's a really interesting one. Um, it's it's funny um as artists the most uh the subject that most people will um go back to again and again and again throughout the ages since time began is the subject of love and mm. th- there are myriads of ways of talking about love and you feel as though everything is, that can be said is being said, and yet there are still more songs about love. It's trying to 
sometimes you 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 struggle to find that perfect combination of the words you want to say to people to express what it is you're feeling inside mm. that goes with the right uh melodic structure the right melody you mm. know and that marriage of the two um and when you find it when that works it, those songs take on a life of their own and they just endure and endure and endure and endure and it's for me it's always trying to find that perfect uh you know uh, marriage that 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 symbiotic thing between the notes that fall in the right place with these particular words mm. that just makes everyone go oh my god i get it you know um you look at uh adele <laughs> for example you know sells loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of records known mm. the world over um she talks about in one of her songs you know losing uh, a relationship that 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 fell apart we've all been there um that person's moved on in their head uh, and in their life and and Adele is stuck in hers and she sings never mind i'll find someone like you and just those words with the particular choices of the notes that reinforce those words just took on a life of their own and people all around the world singing this song karaoke machines you know <laughs> singing along to the radio singing in the shower you know or going along to the concerts with their hands in the air waving it singing it back to Adele as she sings it to them um and yet this is a human emotion which we've all felt we've all been there it's been sung about but there was something in the way those notes and that phrase came together that made magic mm. that's the motivation that's the holy grail that's what we're all trying to do for me um my uh my motivation in human form was and is Prince, you know, whenever I'm in the studio and I'm fiddling around with chord progressions and melodic ideas and lyrics, um, um, I kind of have that moment of, well, how would Prince approach that? How would he do this? What would he do? You know, um, because he had such a way with melody, such a definitely had a way with, with, with words. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, legendary had a way with performance. So, it, that is my motivation every single time I put pen to paper or I sit behind a, a piano or I'm in the room with a guitarist. It's always this thing that I'm feeling, this emotion. How do I phrase it in such a way that is so damn clear to any and everybody who will listen and yet, will make the hairs on their arms stand up because the notes that are reinforcing them just sound so right, you know? Um, and, and, and that, just that pursuit 
gives me sometimes immense frustration, but, uh, you know, because, you know, um, um, can't remember who the group was um, looking for the perfect beat, some old hip hop group. But um, it, it is, it's looking for the perfect beat. It's looking for the perfect way to say this thing at this time, um, which will capture that zeitgeist to make everyone go, yeah, that's me. That's how I feel right now, you know, um, but I love it. I feel, I feel I inspired. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I feel really inspired and motivated now. <laughs> um, t- talking of um, talking of lyrics, uh, one, one of the things that I know about you is that you've been very vocal in campaigning against homophobic lyrics. Yeah. Um, which has been a particular issue in in what you might call urban music. I don't yes. particularly like the phrase urban music, but you know, rap and hip-hop. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, you know, do, do you think that we're seeing a, a change there? Are, are artists rethinking historic lyrics, maybe thinking more carefully about the content that they are putting out there? I think with regard to homophobia in, in music, we have seen um, something of a real shift in the past, I'd say, 15 years um, because uh, uh, the the rise and rise of social media has helped. Um, before social media, when people were, you know, talking about Chichi Man and all these pejorative terms mm-hmm. for people who are, who, who are gay and, you know, and all of that, um, you you could voice your opinion or your your upset or you're hurt but um unless it was written in a newspaper article or you know you had the chance to to go on radio or whatever you your 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 outlets were 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 limited you could write a strongly write worded letter to the <laughs> local whatever but yeah who's going to read it really you know um with the rise and rise of social media and with so many different social platforms it means that people kind of have to watch what they do and say, well, they don't have to. Some people quite obviously don't, but um, (laughs) (laughs) should we say those with a, those with a a name, you know, mostly do think about what they're doing and saying and, and, and with the generational changes, you know, I'm generation X millennials and, and definitely the the gen z's as they're called now gen zers <laughs> they've they've come along and their attitudes to inclusivity diversity particularly with sexual orientation and matters of gender fluidity and and, and, and all that whole world they are they are they are intolerant to intolerance they will use social media they will go on tiktok and make you know funny little videos about it they'll create memes so they will let you know that this is not acceptable we're not having it don't do it and of course society has had to shift kicking and screaming in some cases along you know with with that ever-changing pace um and of course, that has meant that you've seen artists over the, the the years, and particularly, you know, lately, who are all kinds of everything. You've got Little Nas X, you know, a country rapper who is gay and proud and out and with his pink 
cowboy hat and his pink outfits and his great big garish earrings and, <laughs> and we love him, you know? Yeah. And you've got Lizzo who is super plus size and does not care at all. You know, you've got so many people, Janelle, Janelle, um, Janelle Monet, who is, you know, uh, 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 non-binary, you know, we, we live in a world now where, um, you can be homophobic if you like, if, if, if you, if you're, a, um, an artist, but you're going to watch your record sales fall off and people are going to call you a boomer a dinosaur and whatever else they can throw at you and let you know that you are of the past and not of the now um so kids are going to save us aren't they yeah yeah (laughs) i mean (laughs) that's where social media is brilliant that's where it, it helps to push change and progression in the right direction Mm. um you know, and the other fifty percent of the time, it's an absolute sex. <laughs> but never mind. I know that all too well. Oh um, yes, <laughs> uh, Corey. Just listening to this, um, you, you've t- you've spoken about Japanese culture a, mm. a few times on the on the podcast so far. Mm. Um, is, is this something that you uh, deal with? You know. Um, Obviously, in sport, we see a lot of athletes who are now speaking out on social justice issues and having a voice. Uh, is that something that, that you experience with performers that you work with? Um, no, about um, there's nothing much about homophobia, mm-hmm. but we do talk about a female empowerment because Japanese are pretty male-dominated culture. Mm-hmm. So women tend to struggle a lot more than males. But um, hmm. I and think it, I was that... in the US, so I do have uh, experiences and knowledge about the diversity and inclusion and homophobia yeah. now. But coming back to the coming back to my uh, Japan, it's pretty I don't know if it's we all understand the issues or we are pretty peaceful in that in the sense that we are tend to accept differences mm. in general because there are many um, actor and actress out there performing uh, be open about their sexuality. Yeah, I, w- I wonder. I guess I'm curious as to whether there's. You know, you talked about that social media scrutiny earlier on, whether there is a, I guess, a, a, not fear, but there's a backlash, isn't there? There's a potential backlash to speaking out on social justice issues mm. um, for, for performers. And I, I wonder if that's something that you've encountered, Beverly, or, or you're aware of? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the time where I was very vocal, and, and I still am on certain things, uh, but at that specific time where I spoke out about um, homophobia and homophobic lyrics and, you know, just being responsible and, and, you know, kind of just trying to stand up for people who I believe just didn't have a voice at that time. Mm. Luckily for me, um, I think Facebook was either not around or if, or in its absolute infancy. There was no Twitter. There was no any any of those other, you know, Instagram or whatever. Um, but yes, it's interesting that um, in uh, more recent times, 
I myself have, have often uh, taken to social media to speak on social justice issues. Again, years of, of having to develop a thick skin kind of means that I will put my head above the parapet, but I am fully ready and, and I accept that if you stick your head above the parapet, there will be someone aiming with a sniper-like precision to try and take your head off. Mm. Um, depending on the issue, my attitude is, well, come on then, give me your best shot. It, it, but it very much depends. I, t- I spoke about, you know, doing the whole, the, the Saturday night TV and people are going to be looking at what I wear and this and that and that. Those things, it's not worth my time or my energy to read what someone's saying about my choice of dress or mm. hairstyle or whatever, but mm. just doesn't matter. But there are some things which I believe um, one with it, especially if you've got a blue tick next to your name, you can't stay silent on. Mm. Um, for example, uh, what happened with um, with George Floyd, um, you know, I, I, I went to Instagram and did a, a, a live about it and, talked longer than I thought I was going to talk just about, um, you know, uh, uh, what it feels like as a black woman in Britain watching these horrors unfold before my eyes, you know, in the US and, and, and kind of said, you know, don't think for a second that those attitudes don't exist in this country because they absolutely do. Um, and then speaking out about Windrush, which was my, you know, my mum and dad and my uncles and that generation. And mm, yeah. uh, I, I know I'm going to be up against it. I know the hostility that I'm going to face. But for me, I believe fervently that in those instances, I have the weight of history and and right and, and decency on my side. So... I'm prepared to take what what comes. Um, yeah, there are other issues where I might flip and flop, you know, like po- politics. You know, you can argue politics back and forth. Hmm. Sometimes it's just not worth getting into it. But social justice things, um, I think for someone like me, if I feel strongly enough about something, then I'm going to say, say something and just take a deep breath and know what's going to come but be prepared for what's going to come. It doesn't make it easy, but, you know, (laughs) sometimes you just gotta, you can't stay quiet on on something. So I'm here with Beverly Knight and Dr. Kaori Akari, and this is 80% Mental. If you've enjoyed the conversation, uh, please do like, subscribe, share, tweet, all that stuff. Um, or you can leave a comment on the website, 80percentmental.com or follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast. Um, I want to thank you both for a wonderful conversation so far. I have a couple of questions uh, left, if that's okay. Yes, of course. Sure. So I want to come to uh, Kaori first. And you've had experience as a sports psychologist. We talked earlier about your work with uh, uh, Japan Rugby and the kind of wonderful experience you had with, with them. Um, what are the biggest lessons that you've learned as a psychologist working with uh, different types of performers outside of sports, so the actors, the musicians? What are the biggest things that you've learned? Hmm. 
I think hard work is a priority in the sporting industry and putting effort challenge all the time push yourself is valued in sporting sports environment but sometimes music is just different um so uh, i just sometimes need to change my um way to uh support artist i sometimes need to talk to um people around them like management staff producer the head of managing head of the management company they need to know what kind of um, expectation they have to the artist so i can support them fully so i learned that athletes is a little bit more simple because coach <laughs> give you the standard and goals the clear goals to pursue mm-hmm. and uh, athletes know how to get there so anything anything pro- prevent them from being um, have a good performance we just need to eliminate and uh, cope with it and um, train under the pressure is okay but artists is a little bit different mm-hmm. so I need to make sure that of course I work with the coaches and um, management staff for the athletes as well but uh, in the music industry I need to have uh, more time to communicate with uh, those staff around the artist so artists can perform better and um, I believe um, for sports we have like a championship and competition and the result is pretty clear time or record or the place or like, very easy to see but sometimes for the artists very hard to see the end results mm-hmm. and um, like there's many um, aspects to evaluate the artist's performance it's for example like uh, sometimes those evaluation depend on uh, uh, others behavior like uh, reaching to the uh, uh, the music and downloading music buying the uh, certain uh, stuff for the artist or buying a ticket to go to live so sometimes the evaluation depends on others' comments or those behaviors. So I just um, uh, try to make sure that reach to many information and in how artists or their management company evaluate their own performance, the artist's performance. Mm-hmm. In the sense that sports is a little bit easier to see uh, how well they're doing. I think that's really useful. It's really useful advice. We have a lot of uh, trainee sports psychologists listen to the podcast. So working with the support team to support the performer and finding different ways of evaluating performance are going to be very different to, to perhaps the sporting arena. So thank you for that. I think that's really, really uh, useful, useful advice. Thank you. Um, Beverly. Yes. I'm just going to read out a few of your career highlights. <laughs> Uh, so first sol- solo album in 1995 and you can by the way correct me if I'm wrong on any of this by the way sure yeah uh, first solo album in 1995 <laughs> followed by another eight solo albums is that right eight so- studios that's right yeah yeah uh, winner of two black music awards three mobos nominated for several more uh, nominated for the prestigious Mercury Music Prize yeah uh, two Olivier Award nominations as yeah. best Astro- actress in a musical as well mm-hmm Dr. Beverly Knight, I should be calling you. Yeah. Uh, 
doctor of, uh, honorary doctorate of music from the University of Wolverhampton. Yeah. Uh, winner of Celebrity Mastermind. Yes, that was what, a proud moment. What I'm not was your, lie. What was your specialist subject? <laughs> the life and times of Prince. Of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. But I've got really good general knowledge. So, yeah. yeah. Brilliant. And um, an MBE as well uh, in 2006. And uh, and obviously recently uh, we've starred in Sister Act, the musical. And I am going to unashamedly admit that Sister Act and Sister Act 2 are among my all-time favourite films. So, oh, great uh, films. <laughs> just going to th- throw that out there without any That's shame cool. whatsoever because they're amazing. Um, <laughs> but my question um, was in, in such a long and successful career and varied career as well, what stands out to you as something that you've thought, yeah, this is it. This this is amazing. This is the best. Honestly, and as as predictable as it sounds, I'm going to say it anyway, um, standing on a makeshift stage in a house rented by Prince in Los Angeles at his post-Oscars party in the February of 2008 and having him hand me the mic so that I could sing Aretha Franklin's Rocksteady to the great and good of Hollywood who was gathered there, some of which had their statuettes in their hand, <laughs> was everything. <laughs> nothing. No accolade, no number one record, no nothing can touch that. That feeling of my absolute hero saying, well, even knowing I'm alive for a start, Um, you know, caring enough about what I did to have me come to his house party, getting me up on stage and then having me perform with his band, with him at my side, you know, singing away was the greatest honour of my entire musical career. Just unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, and I, I still kind of think to myself, did that really happen? Or was that one of those dreams <laughs> that, you know, really vivid? And I know it happened. Yes, it happened. And I've got people who were there who know me who were in the room where it happened. So it's, it. but the, when I tell the story, it sounds so fantastical. Mm. Um, and yet it really happened to to this woman from Wolverhampton who just wanted to sing for her supper I I still can't quite believe it now Um, and it's a very 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 special memory more so um, now that um, Prince is no longer with us Hmm. Um, it just was everything it really was yeah and what what a story to tell yeah story to be able to tell people really really truly is um, I, I've asked all of the performers that I've had on this series so far this question, and it's, it's really similar to what I asked uh, Corey earlier. What's the most important lesson that you've learned about yourself over the years? <sighs> Brilliant question. That I, I have the ability to change and adapt I always thought I was one of those people who was comfortable doing what I was doing until something else presents itself in front of me, some new challenge, some new, you know, direction for me to go in. And my initial thing is, oh, I don't know, I don't know, I'm not sure. 
and then I try it out and then I'm fine with it. And then, you know, it might be something I have to work at, but I, 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 I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the, with the difference, with the change. Mm. And I've learned that to embrace change and to embrace the adaptation of my career um, has brought me nothing but positivity. So, um, yeah, long may that continue. Um, don't don't be scared to 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 change things up, to try new things. In it's it's when we 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 challenge ourselves and step just a little way outside of what we know and what is entirely comfortable that we find really great things. <laughs> well, I mean, what a wonderful way to uh, to bring the podcast to a close. Um, well, a fantastic answer. So thank you very much for that. Oh, pleasure. Um, we are coming towards the end of the time that we've got. So it only uh, the only thing that's left for me to do is to thank uh, my guests for this episode. So Dr. Kaori Araki, uh, psychologist, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Again, I know it's late for you, so go home, go to bed, get some sleep. Uh, <laughs> but thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time to come on 80% Mental. Thank you very much. I really enjoy, um, especially listening to the Reveille. I uh, learn a lot. <laughs> I'm supposed <laughs> to answer some questions, but I tend to listen too much. I, I forget oh, that sometimes. Oh, I thank you. To... Thank you for your insights and your wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to the Queen of Soul. Beverly Knight, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. It's been absolutely amazing talking to you and hearing your um, experiences and your insights on the psychology of the singer. So thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really, really enjoyed it. Just just wonderful. Thank you. No, my, my absolute pleasure. Uh, what we'll do is we'll put your uh, everyone's details in the description for the episode. Um, so if people want to reach out and find out, um, a little bit more about, uh, either of you, then you can go to the episode description and click on some of the links there before we go though, Beverly, what have you got coming up? Cause I've been told that you've, you've got some, uh, some things coming up, uh, in your, in your career next. All, all, all kinds of craziness. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I'm well, currently I'm filming, um, series two of the Saturday night TV show starstruck which is fun. And, um, and then I, um, have a new album for next year, which is major fun. Um, and, uh, yeah, with that, I'll be supporting it with a tour and everything. So that's all coming up for me next year. Um, as well as, um, of course, somewhere in the mix, more theater. So I'll, I'll be busy. <laughs> out of mischief. <laughs> Well, good luck with it and good luck with everything that you've got coming up. And, and Thank just thanks you. once again for uh, for coming on. My pleasure. Well, such a wonderful conversation uh, with Dr. Kaori Araki and Beverly Knight on the psychology of the singer. If you enjoyed that conversation, then please don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast at 80percentmental.com where you can leave a comment. Um, or you can find us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental. Please do get in touch. We'd love to know your thoughts, what you think about what you've just heard, any of your own experiences as a performer, what resonated with you. Please remember to like, share, retweet, spread the good word of the 80% Mental Podcast. 
And I guess all that's left to say is thanks very much for listening. And I'll see you next time. Well, I'll see you. It's, you know, it's a podcast. Thank you.